From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. From U.S. warmongering to the imprisonment of Julian Assange to the stories that movies tell us, we have an in-depth conversation about corporate media and national and international news with journalist John Jeter. Julian Assange is facing very serious bodily harm because he showed that the United States is guilty of a war crime. Against who? People of color in Iraq, in Afghanistan. We're trying to qualify still to the last minute this subjugation, this colonization of mostly people of color and women. And after three years of delay by Mayor Bowser and D.C. police, a Superior Court judge orders the district to begin collecting information about the race of those they stop and frisk. We were told that we would need to watch 31,000 body camera videos that, by the way, we would also have to pay for in order to compile the data that the D.C. Council said the police were supposed to be collecting back in 2016. These stories and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. While the tragic deaths of El Salvadoran asylum seekers Oscar Martinez Ramirez and his daughter Valeria photographed in a shocking image that went viral around the world of their bodies floating in the Rio Grande River spurred outrage among progressives in the House of Representatives this week after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi first rejected then accepted a Senate bill that gives the Trump administration $4.6 billion more for the border crisis without rules that progressives wanted, stipulating that the funds be used for humanitarian relief and not to build more cages for children or to fund private detention facilities that have been likened to concentration camps. Even after right-wing House Democrats announced that they had the votes to pass a Senate bill without the progressive amendments, Representative Tony Cardenas of California made an emotional plea for House members to remember that the United States is a nation of immigrants. My beautiful grandkids get to be American citizens because somebody made the journey sometime before them. This is not a game. We are fighting for the lives of human beings who should have the opportunity to be just like every person on this floor. Earlier in the week, freshman lawmakers, Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, and Rashida Tlaib of Michigan issued a joint statement denouncing Trump's announced deportations of undocumented workers and denounced the additional funding to border agencies that they characterized as radicalized and criminal. The statement said in part, quote, it is absolutely unconscionable to even consider giving one more dollar to support this president's deportation force that openly commits human rights abuses and refuses to be held accountable to the American people. That is why, in good conscience, we cannot support this supplemental funding bill, which gives even more money to ICE and CPB and continues to support a fundamentally cruel and broken immigration system. We must abolish ICE, the statement continued. We must invest in community-based alternatives to detention. We must end the system of mass detention and deportation of immigrants. We must create an immigration system that reflects our values and respects the dignity and humanity of all, end quote, the statement said. 
Also on Thursday, the Supreme Court struck down at least temporarily the Trump administration's proposal to put a citizenship question on the census. But the court dealt a blow to voting rights by upholding the right of politicians to draw partisan, gerrymandered voting districts. Karen Hobart Flynn, president of Common Cause, said in a statement, quote, Today, five Supreme Court justices turned their backs on hundreds of thousands of people in Maryland and North Carolina, stripped of their voice in Washington by power-hungry politicians. The Supreme Court had the opportunity to end partisan gerrymandering once and for all, but instead, a narrow majority chose to wash their hands of the undemocratic practice, end quote. In the district on Thursday, D.C. Superior Court ordered D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department to begin collecting stop-and-frisk data required by the district's NEAR Act, a crime reduction law. Despite the law requirement that race data be collected during incidents of police stopping and frisking residents, D.C. police have not obeyed the law. In response to a recent Freedom of Information Act request from the ACLU for six months of race data, the police department responded that the data is only available by watching more than 31,000 body-worn cameras. In addition, based on a previous bill that ACLU received from MPD for body camera footage, the ACLU estimates that the MPD would charge them in excess of $3.6 million to get access to data that, under the NEAR Act, should be free and accessible to the public. April Goggins, a core organizer with Black Lives Matter D.C., is a lead plaintiff in the lawsuit Black Lives Matter DC versus Bowser. She said that, quote, MPD's utter contempt for the NEAR Act is unmistakable when three years after data collection was legally mandated, their idea of compliance is to tell us to fire up our computers and find this information ourselves, end quote. And Eugene Perrier of Stop Police Terror Project DC, a co-plaintiff in the lawsuit called the court ruling an important step forward for transparency and accountability in the District of Columbia. Scott Michaelman, legal co-director of the ACLU of D.C. and lead counsel for the plaintiffs, spoke to On the Ground after Thursday's decision. Today's decision is a critical first step in bringing real transparency and accountability to the work of the Metropolitan Police Department. Today's decision requires that the police actually begin to collect all the data that the D.C. Council requires. And when we have that data, we'll be in a position to recommend policy reforms or determine if unconstitutional practices are happening so that we can potentially bring some uh, some serious change to the way D.C. residents are being policed. I think it's so important that community members make their voices heard, whether in council hearings or showing up for court hearings. We were very pleased to see so many of the community members turn out for our hearing on the preliminary injunction motion. That's the order that was granted today. And I think the judge recognized that in part because of the uh, the tremendous community presence, the stakes of this question to residents of D.C., whether they're going to be treated fairly by the police, whether they're going to be viewed presumptively as suspects. So uh, showing up, turning out, raising your voice, uh, letting yourself be heard to your council members is really important 
to keeping the pressure on MPD to make sure that uh, that they are behaving in a manner that is respectful and consistent with their obligations under the law. The court ordered MPD officers to use a simple one-page form developed by the ACLU of D.C. to keep track of the data. Michael Min explained how and why D.C. residents demanded more transparency about policing. In 2016, the D.C. Council passed a law called the NEAR Act requiring the D.C. police to keep comprehensive records every time they stop, that is, detain a person in the District of Columbia. And these are pretty basic pieces of information, like the date the stop happened, the person's race and gender, whether there was a search, the reason for the stop, and, and other information of that type. And the reason the D.C. Council wanted this information is to respond to uh, a concern that, frankly, many members of the community have had for a long time, that D.C. police are not applying the law even-handedly and, and in particular, are um, over-policing members of the African-American community. Unfortunately, the D.C. police did not implement this law. They spent two years dragging their feet obfuscating what they were doing, and in some cases misleading the public, pretending that they were taking efforts to implement the data collection requirement when they weren't. So in 2018, Black Lives Matter, Stop Police Terror Project, and the ACLU of D.C. sued the Bowser administration to force compliance with the law. Now, in June of 2019, we've obtained a court order requiring that MPD finally starts complying with the law as they've resisted doing for the last three years. They've tried everything to try to put off complying with this law. For a while, they just ignored it. The D.C. Council appropriated money for it, and they didn't spend it. Then finally, when, when we took them into court, they proposed a series of half measures or uh, or interim steps that were designed to make the data impossible to compile in a meaningful way. And the most egregious one was they proposed to collect race data, obviously a critical piece of data uh, for a subset of the stops, only on officers' body cameras. So they wouldn't be available uh, in any paper form. They wouldn't be in any computer file. Instead, in order to compile a complete set of data, uh, an organization or, or an individual would have to watch all of the body camera videos of every stop that had occurred, and, and obviously that's completely impractical. When we submitted a FOIA request to see how we could get data under this interim plan, we were told that we would need to watch 31,000 body camera videos that, by the way, we would also have to pay for in order to compile the data that the D.C. Council said the police were supposed to be collecting back in 2016. So one of the things the judge recognized in his opinion today is that that's a completely unreasonable implementation of the statute and that D.C. was not, in fact, complying with it. Two D.C. Council hearings on police conduct covered by On the Ground during the summer of 2018 included testimony about several high-profile controversial stop-and-frisk brutality incidents involving black D.C. residents. Michael Mintz said that if police officers had collected proper data during those incidents, the community would now have more official information that could assist in making needed changes in policing policies. 
And there was a, an incident that got a lot of attention in the summer of 2018 when a group of nine young black men were stopped by a group of MPD uh, officers, even though it wasn't clear that, they, that, that the men were doing anything wrong. There was a man passing by who appeared to be uh, appeared to be working with the police, although the police have denied that, who had a BB gun on him. And on that basis, the police uh, questioned all of the, the men who were there, uh, even though they didn't know that man. And, uh, and the police didn't even arrest the man that they had found with the gun. And so that gave rise to, or continued to fuel suspicions that DC police were simply stopping young black men uh, to see if they could find anything. We've heard countless reports over the years from community members saying that the jump out squads, that members of DC police's gun recovery unit will pull up and in a very aggressive way, jump out of their cars and intimidate members of the community, ask them if they have guns or drugs, uh, potentially stop and frisk them without the appropriate amount of suspicion. Now, another incident that was uh, very troubling to us and in which we represented the person who was uh, the victim of of police conduct was uh, one that took place in Bellevue in September of 2017. And that was an incident where uh, the police approached another group of black men who were doing nothing but talking, hanging out on, on the street of their neighborhood. And one of the men, uh, one of the officers searched one of the men in an incredibly aggressive fashion, including probing his, his private parts, his, uh, his rear end and genitals, even though he had no reason to suspect that he would find anything there or that the man was, was armed and dangerous. And so it's incidents like this that make us feel and made the D.C. Council feel that D.C. residents deserve a complete picture a data-driven picture of how the Metropolitan Police Department is policing residents in the district. And it's that obligation that the police have been dodging for three years and that today's decision from the Superior Court requires them to implement. Also, a year after several MPD officers shot and killed Marquise Austin in Southeast D.C., and more than a year after two other black men, Jeffrey Price and Daquan Young, were killed in police-involved incidents during May of 2018. In all three cases, family members have questions about the deaths, but have not been given access to police body camera footage. Related to the death of Jeffrey Price, the ACLU of D.C. also recently filed a lawsuit against MPD officer Joseph Gupton for a warrantless search on the property of Jeffrey Price's mother, Denise Price, one week after her son died in a collision with a police car. That crash is currently under investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Thank you to Chantel James for our reporting on this story. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm joined now by the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. So, Gerald, let's start with the meeting of the G20 countries happening today and tomorrow in Osaka, Japan. What are you watching for at this year's summit? Well, it's quite striking that immediately upon landing in Japan, the 45th U.S. president criticized Germany, a 
an alleged U.S. ally, uh, Japan, uh, India. It's remarkable, is it not? He has conflicts with all of those nations, even though he needs those nations if the United States is to confront China successfully. The meeting with President Xi Jinping on Saturday will probably be the centerpiece uh, of this G20 meeting. Clear to me whether or not there will be a ceasefire called with regard to this trade war. In any case, uh, it's going to be evident sooner or later that the trade war is having a negative impact on the U.S. economy. It's going to have a negative impact on those who shop for bargains at Walmart and the dollar store and Target. It's going to have a negative impact on the longshoremen and stevedores who work at ports from Long Beach, Los Angeles, to Houston, to Savannah, to Baltimore. So one can only hope that Mr. Trump can adopt a reasonable posture at some point during this meeting of the G20 in Japan. I'm, I'm sure you noticed the recent round of, I guess, additional aid given to farmers, I guess, to shore up his base. These farmers were... I think, as we discussed, you know, affected by floods and the the tariffs and any kind of word about what kind of impact that's having on these farmers that are many of whom have faced foreclosure this year. I think those farmers are shafted because China is going to be shifting buying soybeans and agricultural products to countries like Brazil and Argentina that's already in place. It's going to be very difficult for these U.S. Western farmers to recapture those markets unless Mr. Trump is a better negotiator than he's shown to this point. So also moving to Africa, uh, since we last spoke, there was an attempted coup in a region of Ethiopia. So uh, and I think several officials were killed. So what happened and what does this mean going forward? It's a very serious and unfortunate turn of events. Uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has distinguished himself during his brief tenure by negotiating a peace agreement with Eritrea, with which Ethiopia has had conflict for years now. He freed political prisoners. Ethiopia has one of the most fast, uh, one of the fastest growing economies on the African continent. Ethiopian Airways is the leading carrier on the continent, uh, and is indispensable with regard to the economies of virtually every nation on the African continent. The overriding problem in Ethiopia is nothing new. In some ways, Ethiopia reminds me of Tsarist Russia before 1917, when Russia was considered to be a prison house of nations. Ethiopia has many different ethnic groups, and one of the factors that characterize this recent attempted coup has been the conflict between, among others, the Amharas, who consider themselves to be the leading ethnic group in Ethiopia. And from their point of view, they see the Tigrayans, who are only about 6% of the population, as playing an outsized role in politics and in the economy. And then there are the Oromos, and Prime Minister uh, Abiy Ahmed is... uh, Aromo, at least he's half Aromo, minimally. And uh, that particular conflict is tearing at the very fabric 
of Ethiopia. And in fact, it's having uh, reverberations continentally because Ethiopia was involved in a mediation effort in Sudan. But once this conflict erupted in Ethiopia, many of the Sudanese, at least the military, uh, told the Ethiopian mediators that they should go back to Addis Ababa and tend to their own problem. So this is a very serious and unfortunate turn of events, and it's unclear how it's going to eventuate. Well, for our last topic, we're going to veer into an area we don't normally discuss, and that's culture. You have a new book, and those regular listeners to the show will say, what? He just had a new book. So at the at the same time that you release White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rose to Mandela, Around that same time, another book was hot off the press, Jazz and Justice, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music. So I know that you're going to be at Sankofa on July 5th at 6.30 p.m. uh, with both books, but we haven't really talked about the Jazz and Justice book. So tell me about turning your attention toward culture and, you know, what this book is about. Well, first of all, as you know, I published a couple books on Hollywood and am a frequent movie critic. And so this book on the music in some ways is an outgrowth of those books on film. I should also say that this book, its title is not coincidental. In some ways, it's an homage to the Jazz and Justice Station in Washington, D.C., WPFW. It traces this music that is oftentimes referred to as jazz from its origins in the late 19th century most likely in New Orleans, up into the present, a principal focus of this book, as the title suggests, is the attempt by musicians to reclaim the wealth that they had been creating and that they are creating. And it's been an uphill climb. And I should also say that a major impediment to their being able to accomplish that goal has been the evil doing, if you like, of organized crime. Uh, Those are the figures who oftentimes control the clubs where the music is being performed. Uh, Those are the figures who oftentimes dominate the musicians' unions and the locals from New York to Los Angeles. And uh, a turning point, it seems to me, with regard to this music Uh, comes in the 1950s when the bassist Charles Mingus of Los Angeles and the drummer Max Roach, mostly of Brooklyn, uh, band together and try to form a record company, Debut Records, which is a significant turning point in terms of musicians trying to control the music. But alas, it, it runs into some of the stumbling blocks that I've just made reference to, organized crime not least, But in any case, that particular struggle continues. And fortunately, with the retreat, at least minimal retreat of Jim Crow over the past half century, you've seen musicians being able to claim and reclaim some of the wealth that their music has generated. Wow. Well, I will definitely look forward to continue reading the book and uh, I hope that we can talk about it a little bit some more next week as I get further into the book on this week that we are focusing on culture and media and I guess kind of like culture and activism art and activism your theme kind of dovetails with the 
uh, interview later in the show with journalist John Jeter, who is kind of taking up Edward Said's uh, theme of Orientalism to talk about white capital controlling black labor and in your case kind of black labor and art and culture so i see these kind of things as being connected but i'm I'm looking forward to reading the book and i want to remind people that you'll be at sankofa books on july 5th at 6 30 p.m well thank you all right so i've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst professor gerald horn thank you for joining me today gerald thank you for inviting me Also on Culture and Media, the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution is holding a forum to protest new U.S. restrictions on travel to Cuba and to provide a report back on those who attended the May Day Brigade this year. That's Friday, June 28, 2019, 7 p.m. at 1525 Newton Street in D.C. Also, the D.C. Black Theater and Arts Festival is happening through July 7th. More information is at dcblacktheaterfestival.com. And Twisted Melodies, Kelvin Roston Jr.'s play about the life of singer-songwriter Donny Hathaway is at Mosaic Theater in Northeast D.C. through July 17th. More information is at mosaictheater.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Effects and Black. Inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para revolución I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para liberación Ayo, ayo My heroes are young lords adored And ready to go to war In a society with racial anxiety Singing the blues of various hues and colors On the streets People were killing each other So they On the coalition of brothers and sisters on a revolutionary mission. Now listen, they won't open with no crooked ass politicians. They made their own decisions based solely on their proposition. They had a 13 point program and platform. They knew that organizing was an art form that they could transform from college students and dorms into a militant organization with uniforms. The newspapers read Liberación or Hunter. Liberty of death to their last breath. Fighting for those that have less. So though we mass stress, we still bless. Stay blessed. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para revolución I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usan su mente para liberación Ayo, ayo Estaba en un lado con la luz apagado Desde el hermano así su palabra Están enterrados Ves que la sangre de los incas, aztecas y mayas Lo llevan much higher Como Malcolm y Che Guevara Rebel categorized together equals liberty over the weather before it started forever. Somos soldados, lo llaman no malo, pero solo queremos que los niños crezcan y entiendan su lesson, no sea que guessen. Ahora es el tiempo, yo no te miento, cuando confrontamos problemas muy graves, lo convertimos a animales. Oye, amigo, ustedes no quieren problemas conmigo. Uno solo hace lo que le da la gana y quien gana cuando un parte de gana no tiene nada. Repítalo, uno solo hace lo que le da la gana y quien gana cuando la migra se lleva a mi hermana. I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa su mente para revolución I'm inspired by the strength of the people From the streets to the steeple We all equal inspiration Lo que me inspira es el poder de la gente Lo que usa su mente para liberación Ayo, ayo 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And it's the fourth week of the month, time for all things culture and media. And joining me for June, and I hope for many more months to come, is journalist, author, and former Washington Post Foreign Bureau Chief John Jeter, whose most recent book is Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He's joining us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Um, Thank you very much, Esther. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, on an almost weekly basis, it's very difficult for me to separate the news from how the news is being covered. But in spite of the many options to enumerate hits and misses, I managed to whittle down my big media stories to the ongoing imprisonment of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange on so-called espionage charges and the re-imprisonment of Army whistleblower Chelsea Manning for refusing to testify against Assange before a grand jury in Virginia. Second, as warmongers here in D.C. have managed to put the world on the precipice of catastrophe, the sad state of how the world is reported on by corporate media, and finally how this sad coverage even spills into coverage of arts, culture, and sports. So, John, when we discussed these ideas, you responded to me that so much of what I mentioned about media coverage and culture today can be encapsulated with the idea of Orientalism, specifically Edward Said's analysis of how the U.S. and Europe paints and depicts the Arab world to justify domination and colonialism. And so I was like, well, okay, that sounds true. So let's start by you laying out your big idea. Well, it's not really my big idea. It's the late Edward Said's, and I'm just sort of taking his idea and running with it and applying it to the United States specifically, but really the West generally, as we see the economies and the political arrangements of the West start to fray at the edges. And I believe what we're seeing is this evolution of Edward Said's idea of Orientalism, which dates back to, in Said's description, to Napoleon's conquest of Egypt and sending in all sorts of men of letters and science, writers and demographers and all sorts of scientists to essentially qualify their colonial conquests. Well, now we're at the opposite end, and we see these things coming to a kind of an abrupt end as the neocolonial system starts to really wither away, both sort of internally in the United States, but also globally. And I think that we're seeing a doubling down of these Orientalist narratives, these narratives which Saeed described as white people describing people of color to white people. And now we're seeing this doubling down, but we're also seeing, I think, blacks and other people of color join in promoting this Orientalist narrative, qualifying the subjugation and exploitation of people of color and of women. For example, the respected news organizations like the Washington Post and the New York Times have consistently beat the drums for war, for invasion, for colonialism. And that just reminds me of what you're talking about in terms of Saeed's analysis. Yeah, well, I think pretty much everything for you and I have been both fortunate and unfortunate to work in the mainstream media. And so we know how it works, but we also have the advantage of knowing sort of what stories never get told or rarely get told. And so Iran is a perfect example. If you watch CNN or MSNBC or CBS or read the New York Times, 
you will never have an understanding of Iran's very painful history and the central role that the United States played in the, the 1950, was it 51 or 53? 1953. The coup that was organized by, I think it was Franklin Roosevelt's nephew, and overthrew a democratically elected and reformist liberal named Mossadegh. And Iranians, most of whom don't remember that, but they know this story. And so the point I'm making is that who's the real menace here? Historically, the menace has not been Iran to the United States. It has been the United States to Iran. Furthermore, when you hear Donald Trump proclaim Iran cannot have nuclear weapons, why not? Israel has them. Many of them. Furthermore, Iran does not have nuclear weapons. They're nowhere near close to having nuclear weapons. And he wanted to make sure that Saudi Arabia has them. Exactly. Of all, of all places. So Think about the cynicism of this. He says Iran cannot have nuclear weapons. Iran is a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Act, United Nations Nuclear Non-Proliferation Act, which means that they will voluntarily allow inspectors in, United Nations inspectors, nuclear inspectors into their country to inspect their program as often as they would like. Israel is not a signatory. We believe they have somewhere in the area of 400 nuclear warheads. They are not a signatory. Their nuclear program is the worst kept state secret in the world. You can be imprisoned if you're Israeli and you even mention their nuclear warheads. And yet, we want to punish Iran. We can have a debate about these things, but we have to sort of bring all the facts to the table. And the media refuses, I think, willfully to do that. Right. So the corporate media stays in another lane, a narrow lane, supporting warmongering in the Middle East. So, for example, I have a clip from this week's Democratic presidential debates with Lester Holt of NBC News questioning Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii the candidate who undoubtedly has put forth the strongest platform that is anti-war, anti-military industrial complex. And it was actually so striking how Holt's two questions for her reinforced this implicit bias against Arabs and for considering war like it's like it's an actual option. Let's go to the clip. You said that you would, you would sign back on the 2015 deal. Would you would you insist, though, that it address Iran's support for Hezbollah? Uh, let's deal with the situation where we are, where this president and his chicken hawk cabinet have led us to the brink of war with Iran. I served in the war in Iraq at the height of the war in 2005, a war that took over 4,000 of my brothers and sisters in uniforms lives. The American people need to understand that this war with Iran would be far more devastating, far more costly than anything that we ever saw in Iraq. It would take many more lives. It would exacerbate the refugee crisis. And it wouldn't be just contained within Iran. This would turn into a regional war. This is why it's so important that every one of us, every single American, stand up and say, no war with Iran. We need to get back into the Iran nuclear agreement. And we need to negotiate how we can improve it. It was an imperfect deal. There are issues like their missile, devel- their missile development that needs to be addressed. We can do both simultaneously to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon and preventing us from going time to is war. Up. I have just a very quick follow-up. Well, what would your red line be that would that for military action against Iran? Look, obviously, if there was an attack against the American, uh, our troops... 
then there would have to be a response. But my point is, and it's important for us to recognize this, is Donald Trump and his cabinet, Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, and others, are creating a situation that just a spark would light off a war with Iran, which is incredibly dangerous. That's why we need to de-escalate tensions. Trump needs to get back into the Iran nuclear deal and swallow his pride. Put the American people first. Hey, but wait a minute. All right, we are out of time. We're up against the so that was Lester Holt of NBC questioning Tulsi Gabbard during this week's Democratic presidential debates, definitely staying on that precarious road to considering war with Iran as an actual option. Thankfully, we do have some alternative media. And for example, through that media, some people have been reminded of the time in 1988, I believe, when we shot down an Iranian passenger jet. And yeah, and that we killed 300 people. And this was a, a willful act. We were in their territory. Someone recently uh, compared it to that Iran had a warship parked off of Florida and shot down a, a U.S. jet taking off from Miami. That's exactly <laughs> you right. Know? And George Bush never apologized. And he said he would never apologize for the U.S. This arrogance it's so tied to what you're talking about in terms of Orientalism and how this view of the rest of the world makes it possible for the United States and Europe to other people to make them less than human and therefore easy to kill. Like, that's why we don't hear about Yemen. That's why we don't hear about these atrocities that we're talking about right now. That's why so many people didn't know about the massacre at El Mozate. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. That Ilhan Omar revealed when she grilled uh, Elliot Abrams in Congress. So many people didn't know about that massacre and how we were complicit in arming these death squads, not only in El Salvador, but throughout South and Central America. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's important for your audience to understand uh, not just what happened, the massacre at El Mazzotti. Mark Danner, who was a reporter, I think at the New Yorker at the time, did this fantastic 22,000 word piece, which I think was article, which was published, I think, in 1994, it really represents the distinction between the possibilities of journalism, which can be raised to the level of art. Well, Danner basically interviewed the survivors of the CIA-backed government, reactionary government of El Salvador, and they massacred an entire village, hundreds of people. I can't remember the exact number, but hundreds of people. And he interviewed uh, the survivors of this. And the context he gave it, it was so complete, it was transformative, because you were basically listening to these people tell their stories. Now, think about what we hear now in the media. We never hear a reporter, a correspondent, interview the people from El Mazote, from Iran, from, unless it's the ambassadors, right, from El Salvador or Iran. We never hear from these people anymore. So we're disconnected. They become these sort of disembodied voices when we do, you know, rarely hear them. And so it's the distinction between a journalism which serves a democratic purpose and therefore the people and a journalism that seeks to divide us. And basically that's why Julian Assange is facing very serious bodily harm because his reporting was not consistent with this Orientalist view. He showed that the United States is guilty 
of a war crime. Against who? People of color. In Iraq, in Afghanistan. And so that's why there is this hunt on for him, because we're trying to qualify, even as it's starting to, to collapse, we're trying to qualify still, to the last minute, this subjugation, this colonization of mostly people of color and women. Well, speaking of Assange, it was actually shameful to witness so many in corporate media, especially those still caught up in the Russiagate hoax who blame him for contributing to Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016, to see these people gleeful over his arrests. And I would say uh, the chief proponent of that narrative is MSNBC. And I was flipping through the channels one weekend when I heard Joanne Reed, one of the hosts on that channel, gloating that Assange had checked into the Gray Bar Hotel. And here's how she explains her interest in the case. Lawmakers from both of the two major political parties are making it clear they want Julian Assange sent to the U.S. to stand trial for his alleged part in the theft of government secrets a decade ago. Assange was arrested in London Thursday and indicted in the U.S. in the U.S. on hacking charges, not related to the 2016 presidential election, but rather based on the leaks of thousands of classified government documents that Assange received from Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning back in 2010. But could Assange's extradition, if it happens, open the door to charges related to WikiLeaks' role in Russia's attack on the 2016 election? So that was Joanne Reed on MSNBC, obviously all in on the idea that Assange's arrest could somehow bring him to the U.S. through extradition. And bigger fish in corporate media who had even used material from WikiLeaks did not come to Assange's defense when they thought the charges would remain related to hacking. But when it turned out that he's being charged for publishing those truths and facts about what are clear U.S. war crimes during the invasion of Iraq, then even the New York Times had to change its tune because if Assange could be charged, tried in jail for publishing government secrets, then they all could be charged, tried, and jailed. Exactly. And yet they're cheerleading for the Trump administration. They're cheerleading and this sort of obsession with Russiagate, while asserting that Julian Assange is no journalist, what else would he be? He's probably the most important journalist in the English language over the last decade. What, what is he if not a journalist? And so the joy reads to William Jelani Cobbs, the New Yorker, who tweeted the day of his arrest when he was shamefully frog-marched out of the Ecuadorian embassy, uh, which, which is illegal by all Ecuadorian law, as I understand it. And we hear someone like William Jelani Cobb tweet, Julian Assange is not a journalist. It's just shameful. Not only is it illegal, but there was a, there were also reports, again, thanks to the alternative press, that revealed how Ecuador received, you know, $4.2 billion around that time from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and additional funds from organizations close to the U.S., like the World Bank, and also uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, right across the river in Virginia, has been re-imprisoned because she's refused to testify against Julian Assange. And this is all involving the U.S. Uh, war crimes abroad. And uh, maybe that creates an easy segue for us to talk about um, a story I forwarded you earlier this month. And I was so touched by it. It was on Consortium News. It was about the suicide of a longtime foreign correspondent, Arnaud Dubois. I believe I'm saying his name right. 
and uh, he was a specialist in Thailand and his own work and expertise as a foreign correspondent had been so diminished and gradually cut out of the kind of media ecosystem that he served um, primarily in France. He had to switch careers, which was very hard for him and humiliating for him. He saw his, his income plummet drastically so that he could not support himself. And then eventually he, he committed suicide. And the story was just so sad, and, but it also reminded me of the fragility of journalism and how people in these so-called democracies want to say that they have a free press, but we don't really. We have a corporate-owned media that uh, increasingly wants to only spout certain ideas and information about the rest of the world. And if you don't fit into that program conveniently, you're not going to be a part of it very long. Yeah, you sent me that story, and it was really very sad. Uh, and I know if Consortium News wrote about it, he must have been a truly uh, committed journalist because Consortium News is one of the few really honest outlets that we have left in the United States. So it is sad. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a comment on our times. The best journalists are revolutionaries. They're subversive. You know, and I, I, I know we talked about this, Esther, when we were both at the Post, we both felt like subversives in the paper. I know I did. I, I'm sure you did, too. And we, we aggressively looked for things that were meant to foment revolution. Honestly, right? The truth. But still, things that would help people understand their discontent. And unfortunately, these are counter-revolutionary times. I don't know any other way to put it. I don't know any other way to view Julian Assange. I don't know any other way to view Russiagate. I don't know any other way to view the failure of the media to question why Iran can't have nuclear weapons and Israel can. And I, I feel very sad for him. You know, we're seeing an epic spike in suicide in the United States. And it only makes sense that journalists would feel uh, a big part of uh, the brunt of that because there, there's no place for honest journalism in the United States. There's very little, very little space for honest journalism in the United States these days. I think that I may have mentioned, you know, in relationship to this type of coverage, what people call foreign news, is the real shameful coverage of Venezuela. The fact that through that whole ongoing attack on Venezuela, uh, the U.S. has acted as a rogue state in terms of seizing the assets of another country, daring to proclaim someone who was not elected another country's president, I mean, these are things that, you know, it's almost like uh, like a story in the onion or something that you don't think is like real. So, yeah. So and and the fact that this is ongoing and you still have reports like the one I mentioned earlier from Global Research, where you have outlets like The Washington Post continuing to lie about the situation. And you even had CNN in a report they actually said that Juan Guaido had won an election as president back in January. So they were totally wrong in their facts. And it took them a while to actually, I don't know, either run a correction, but maybe that original report is still up. So, you know, we're really living in, I don't, I don't care if it's overused, it is Orwellian. And we have to use that to, to make sure people understand that they're being lied to. And there's no, really no other way to describe it other than a lie. Well, no, there's no other way to describe it. 
So I visited, I had the honor of traveling and working in Venezuela in 2004 when I was still with the Post. I went to Venezuela expecting to see what I had read and heard in the news. This was at the height of the Venezuelan, the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela. And so I was expecting something very different from what I saw, not exactly like what the news media described. Just to remind us, what had you been reading and what did you see? Well, just, you know, that Chavez was authoritarian, that he was mismanaging the economy, that he was increasingly unpopular, that he was very heavy-handed in terms of his police. And I have to say that what I saw was just the opposite of that. Venezuela is about the same percentage, has about the same percentage of blacks, about 13%, as the United States. And what I saw was a population of black and mestizo, mixed-race people, and poor people, who were as in love with Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian Revolution as many people around the world were in love with Fidel Castro. And the elections in Venezuela, uh, and the Carter Center says this, among other elections observers, are the freest and fairest in the world, that they have seen at least. And I'll give you one story that I think sums it up, the kind of news that we're not getting here in the United States. There was a coup in 2002 where the military backed by the richest Venezuelans, went to the presidential palace, kidnapped Hugo Chavez at gunpoint, obviously, and took him to another government building. They told, because they were in cahoots with the media, ironically enough, they told the people over the, the airways that Hugo Chavez had fled with you know vast sums of Venezuelan money, and he was on the beach in Cuba partying with Fidel Castro. The people in the slums didn't believe it, and they got on their ham radios and used citizen journalism to make their plan for what they would do. And someone said, I think I know where he is. And thousands of Venezuelans, led by, this has to be said, Esther, black women, black Afro-Caribbean women, armed mostly with pots and pans, they marched on... Miraflores, I think, the, the, the building where he was being held. And they demanded that the military return Hugo Chavez. And they did exactly that. And I think that story is important because it tells us, what is it Daniel Patrick Moynihan used to say? We're all entitled to our own opinions, but not our own facts. These are facts, right? These are facts. And the American audience does not receive the facts from their news media. Yeah, and I know I'm rapidly running out of time, but in terms of also understanding Venezuela is the, the virulent racism of the so-called Venezuela opposition and the fact that they have lynched black people, burning people alive in the streets. Yes. Um, What's happening in Venezuela is really a war between the white Spanish settlers, Spanish descended settlers who own Venezuela against the black and mestizo working class who built Venezuela. That's what's happening in Venezuela. Well, I guess that continues to like weave into our narrative about Orientalism in terms of 
who gets to depict and paint what story and the overturning of that long running system of the gays and Europeans and people in the United States being able to paint black and brown people in a certain way to justify slavery, colonialism and other types of subjugation and, uh, and oppression. So finally, uh, we want to do our pivot to culture and I know that I'm very interested in still catching up with When They See Us, this uh, Netflix series by Ava DuVernay telling the story of the Central Park Five, five young African-American and Latino teenagers accused of raping and assaulting a young white woman in Central Park. And as it turned out, years later, their convictions were overturned, a serial rapist confessed to the crime. Meanwhile, they had spent, what, decades in prison and the city had to uh, compensate them for the loss of their um, their youth uh, spent behind bars. I saw on your Facebook page how a former NYPD officer, a man of color, and looked like from the CNN report, Eric Reynolds, who made arrest in the case was, despite the confession of this serial rapist, despite the DNA evidence, despite the fact that these young men were coerced, was saying how they were still guilty, kind of almost parroting Donald Trump, who had taken out a full page ad calling for these young men to be executed. And so I extend the analogy of what we're talking about, Orientalism, to this domestic case, because it's another story about us as people of color, as African Americans, you know, having a, a story told about us to the national media. And then, you know, one of our own, so to speak, coming forward to, to validate that story, even though it's been proven false. Yeah, I think that's the perfect example of Orientalism. You have a white media and a white settler political class, not all whites, obviously, that is deeply invested in this narrative of the N-word, right? Because if we're not, right, if we're not inferior people, then that means that they are the savages, right? That their treatment of African Americans, the imprisonment of African Americans, the murder of African Americans, the, the lynchings of African Americans, the exploitation of African Americans uh, through subprime mortgages and, and, and other predatory financial arrangements, that the onus, the accountability, that they are responsible, not us, right? And so that CNN segment struck me because empirically these young men could not have attacked that woman. I have not seen Ava DuVernay's series. I'm looking forward to, to doing so very soon. But I did see, I think it was Kim Burns' daughter, actually, who did the documentary a few years ago on the Central Park Five. And one of the things that became very clear from that was that I think it was the night of the attack in 1989, the police established a timeline. And by their own timeline, if you've ever been to Central Park, you know it is huge. And by their timeline, when people saw these five young men, the attack happened almost at the same time on the other side of the park. It would have been physically impossible for these young men to have committed this attack. And yet, CNN is airing an interview with this man who is 
a puppet of white supremacy, parroting, you know, his belief based on nothing, a betrayal of reason, that he believes these men are guilty. Well, there's no proof of that, right? And yet we still have this, we continue to have this discussion because people are so invested in this narrative. That's exactly what Orientalism is. Wow. And I thank you for weaving together all these seemingly disparate pieces under the framework of Orientalism. The way that people are seen or not seen, heard or not heard, you know, made human or dehumanized is really the story about what we're talking about from everything from war to media to culture. If I can, Esther, just very quickly, it always reminds me of the line from Spike Lee's great movie, Do the Right Thing, where the mayor says, those who know can't say, those who say don't know. That to me defines our news media today. Wow. Okay. Well, then that's the perfect note. I've been speaking to author and journalist John Jeter uh, for this month's extended focus on culture and media. Thank you for joining me today, John. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Go to onthegroundshow.org to support us, work with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we want to give a special thank you to our supporters on Patreon. The hip-hop artist featured at the bottom of the hour was the self-described child of Honduran immigrants, Conrado Maluk, who performed at this week's Solidarity with 10 Years of Honduran Resistance program in Northwest D.C., sponsored by CISPES and other groups to mark 10 years since the U.S.-backed coup of the democratically elected government of Manuel Zelaya. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be speaking at the Women's Summit for Political Engagement in Tyson's Corner, Virginia, on Saturday, June 29th. And on July 3rd, I'll be in New York City participating in the second annual Frederick Douglass Alternative 4th of July celebration sponsored by the National Writers Union in New York. So until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Yeah.